Pulp MX Network Production. Welcome to the Pulp Hockey Show with Steve Mathis. Support the show by clicking the Amazon banner on PulpHockey.com before shopping. Follow the show on Twitter at Pulp Hockey. Subscribe on iTunes and find us on Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pulp Hockey Podcast. Thank you for listening. It's been going well so far. Thank you for uh, the nice tweets and everything else. We really appreciate it. Pulp Hockey Podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher. Couldn't do without the help of the folks at Two Under, the number two, UNDR, Two Under, the best men's underwear out there. Fantastic, guys. And use the code Ferraro20 when you're checking out to save 20% at twounder.com. Joey Pouch and uh, R.A. Dickey and uh, Martin Jones, just some of the guys that use Two Under, and we, uh, we thank them for the support of the show. All right, with me on the line is a guy that's uh, very busy these days, one of the uh, top writers in the sport. He's been doing it a long time. He's got a new book out, The Battle of Alberta, uh, the historic rivalry between the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames, and I wanted to uh, get a little bit of his time to talk to him about the book because um, I just finished it a few weeks ago, and it's fantastic. Sportsnet senior columnist Mark Spector. Speck, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Sounds like fun. What's going on? I really appreciate it because I'm just some strange guy that hits you up on Twitter, so I, I do appreciate the time. So, Well, it's funny because uh, whenever I go to some hockey event, my uh, wife had never worries about it because the players get – the players' groupies are all the 25-year-old beautiful young girls, <laughs> and uh, my groupies are generally 40-year-old men from Twitter. So. Yeah, really, right? <laughs> exactly. That's how it works. She's got nothing to worry about, man. I hear you. I hear you. Um <laughs> Hey, one of the I had to go to Paris to go uh, cover this motorcycle race, and besides the uh, upgrade to first class, like the lay flat beds, uh, getting your book uh, I had on my iPad was the next best thing. I read the whole thing on the on the one flight, so I loved it. Um, of course, me being forty one, uh, growing up in Winnipeg, and uh, cursing. Well, I was I'm a Leaf fan, but still cursing the Oilers and the Flames all those years because the Jets had some pretty good teams. Um, this phenomenal story, and I know you're from Edmonton, but what was where'd you get the idea from, and what made you like say, "Hey, I want to do a book about this"? Where, where'd the idea come from? Well, I was kind of searching. Uh, I've been in the business for a while, and I thought it was you know I wanted to take a run at writing a book and. So then I, you know, your first book, you want it to be something you're familiar with because there's going to be enough surprises ahead becoming an author for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, no one's really done the definitive book on, on really a unique time in NHL history, you know. And I knew where a lot of the bodies were buried. I knew where all the people <laughs> were, how to find them. Sure. So from an author's perspective, it works. And, you know, I've got to say that, I'm not sure there's another rivalry in the history of the game like past original six years when um, the you know one mm-hmm. of those two teams represented the Campbell Conference in the Stanley Cup Final for eight consecutive seasons. So well, yeah, that's insane. You know, there wasn't just a couple of teams scrapping away. It was two of the best teams. Uh, in inside that era of hockey, going at it in the Smite Division Final. And as you talk about in the book, you're in your early 20s, kind of when you first start covering it, and you get a you have a media pass. You're writing for a small paper, and it's just gold for you. These pro, these playoff rivalries and the, even the regular season games, they're just they're chock full of storylines. It's incredible. Well, again, it was a 
you know, when you knew, like, you got to sort of work backwards on this thing, Steve. When you when you knew that the winner of the playoff series was was had a really good chance of going to the Stanley Cup because the team coming out of the old Norris division wasn't going to challenge it. <laughs> right. So so then you knew that you were going to meet in the playoffs every year. So then when it was a game in January and you played, you knew that, you know, first of all, you wouldn't mind getting the two points that night, but probably more importantly was setting the table and and getting things in order and, and you know, paying dues mm-hmm. uh, that were going to get repaid back in, uh, in April and May when the teams met for real. So because the springtime games were so important, it lent meaning to the games in October, November, December, and all those other months. Mm-hmm. It seemed like reading your book, um, it seemed like uh, there was a few few things in there you said, and you've kind of devoted, uh, I think, uh, most of a chapter. I think that uh, reading the book, I came away thinking that you you miss that kind of hockey. You miss uh, goals. You miss um, the the access to players. You miss the uh, the drama, the fighting. Even um, am I right about that? You, you kind of look back on it like really wistfully. <laughs> Well, that's fair. I mean, first thing, I miss the goals. Mm-hmm. You know, I do. I miss the goals. It's a, it is such a 3-2 league now. Uh, I mean, I just saw a stat on TV last night, and I have it perfectly right, but I think in the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there was like 24 games, and the losing team did not score three goals even once. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, if you get to three <laughs> you can just count the game in today's world. And, and yep. you know, so, yeah, I, I miss, you know, extrapolate on that. I miss the goals because everyone likes goals. Back when the Oilers and Plains played in the mid-'80s, the Oilers' average score was 5-4. Yeah. You know, so not only did they score five a night, but they were loose enough defensively that you could get four on them. So I think we, you know, it, with all the goal scoring comes unpredictability. and mm-hmm. And the, the league has never been more predictable. If the St. Louis Blues or the LA Kings get to two on you in the first period, you can roll up the blinds and, and go home, man, because mm-hmm. you're not going to beat them anymore. Yeah, no, you got a good point. What did you say in the book that no team scored more than uh, 300 goals, I think, in a year? Was that it? And then the Oilers scored five, five something <laughs> back in the day? It just insane. Yeah, well, they would routinely score over 400 goals, I can tell you that. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the at teams today, uh, what you see is a team that, that tends to score about 200 goals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not <laughs> – it's a different time here. I'm going to tell you this. The team that led the, the league in scoring last year was, in fact, the Tampa Bay Lightning. They scored 260 goals. That was the highest scoring team yeah. in hockey last year. Crazy. Uh, the Oilers consistently scored over 400 goals a year. When you were uh, when you're doing the book and you're building it, um, did you use all new interviews? Did you do dive into some of your archives? Uh, what what uh, what was the process of putting it together? Well, I did spend a lot of time at the library before I did most of my interviews, and I, I did a lot of research on post-game quotes mm-hmm. from the big moments, right. right? I went down, read the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal and got a lot of, you know, and, and used those quotes when they were appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when, you know, after Mark Messier uh, sucker-punched Jamie McCowan mm-hmm. and took a 10-game suspension, he would for that, 
he said something that you would never hear today, but he basically said, oh, yeah, I, said, I, I wished I would have would have got revenge right away but you know he hit me and i was kind of uh, kind of uh out of it you know yeah. foggy yeah. so i waited for a while and they said then i got him and he says the only thing i regret is i might have caused a permanent eye injury <laughs> 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 like you're not going to get that quote in 2015 so <laughs> yeah no absolutely and then uh um so you kind of dug through got some quotes and then um who who didn't you get that you wanted to try? Was there anybody? I mean, I looked through the book. I couldn't really think of anybody, but anybody you couldn't get or, or wouldn't give you, didn't have time or, or whatever? Well, there was a few guys, and I won't say that any of them just were flat out refused. There was just a few guys that I just, I left some calls with and went back and forth and, and just never got. Uh, I never quite got Paul Coffey, even though when I saw him in person, he said, oh, I'd love to talk. But okay. we couldn't quite hook up on the phone. I never got Mike Vernon, just couldn't track him down. Um, oh, that's you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the point too, Steve, where you say, like, now I'm writing this thing. I got a January deadline. It's we're into October. You got to stop getting interviews and you got to start writing them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so any writer would know you can gather so much information that you almost have too much. I thought I had plenty, mm-hmm. so I stopped making phone calls and wrote the book. And I hope people enjoy it. Which uh, which guy did you like enjoy the most? Which uh, which guy gave you the best stuff or took well, the most time with you? Good question. Yeah, you know, I really I thought that Steve Smith really opened up his. Yeah. Yeah. his vault when it came to that own goal in 86. Uh, Mark Messier sat down, had breakfast with me for about an hour and a half, and really took me back to the breakfast table at the Messier home, you know, when he was a kid, and, mm-hmm. and how what it was he learned as a stick boy for his dad's teams. Uh, Reggie Lemelin, I thought was, I quite enjoyed the interview, talking about the long trail he worked up from the old North American League where he you know, it was basically the slap shot league where he started. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lanny McDonald, you know, talked about how he'd been, you know, he'd been a healthy scratch in that 89 Stanley Cup final. And finally, Terry Chris put him in and his, it was his last game and his last goal, of course, that yeah. ended up in that, in the, you know, when they won the cup that year. So a lot of those guys, I think, you know, again, you, you know a lot of the stories when you start the interview, but mm-hmm. 25, 30 years later, uh, there's a statute of limitations that runs out, and guys are willing to tell you stuff now that they wouldn't have told you back then, you know. So uh, what I thought was going to be a good interview in some cases turned into a fantastic interview because, you know, you're just learning some stuff that had been under wraps for all these years. Right. Well, the one thing I think that really, really uh, I thought was well done and, and, like, exciting to read was the Stu Grimson-Dave Brown fight. Now, I, I'm a pretty big hockey fan. I don't remember that fight at all. I really don't. I had to go back and look and watch it because obviously I read about through your book and I just don't remember it resonating. I mean, like I said, I grew up in Winnipeg and we didn't have the internet and and all that around. But so Grimson gets Brown, like he's a rookie and he gets him. Dave Brown, one of the, one of the best fighters in the league. And I don't know, whatever it is a week later, they're meeting again. And you go through this process of guys talking about what Dave Brown was going through, having getting beaten by this kid. Grimson's a little cocky, and they're coming up to the rematch. I mean, this is this is spellbinding Muhammad Ali, Joe Fraser stuff. It's it's nuts. Well, we just again, it was it was the time that you know Stu Grimson. The deal with Calgary was they never had as many tough guys as Edmonton. They didn't have as many goal scorers either, frankly. Uh, especially in the early years. And so they call up this kid from Salt Lake, Stu Grimson, and and 
no one had ever heard of him. And on the Sunday night in Edmonton, he got the better of Dave Brown. Brown had just come, had, had a cut over his eye from a puck and uh, Grimson caught him there and cut him open. And so now it's Monday morning and all the media shows up to the dressing rooms in Calgary and in Edmonton. And everyone wants to know in Calgary, who's this new champion, Stu Grimson. And right. they write them all up about this great victory and in Edmonton, everyone shows up at the rink and they're asking Dave Brown, what's going on? I mean, you're supposed to be the toughest guy in the league and you just lost a fight to some guy we never heard of. Right. And, you know, that it was important for Dave Brown. His role was to be the toughest guy on the ice any given night. And he told me that, you know, his biggest concern is that his teammates would have some doubt that he could do it anymore. Yeah. And if your teammates doubt you could do it as a heavyweight in those days, your career's hanging by a thread. So... He really spent two days in a in a catatonic state <laughs> awaiting the Tuesday night game okay, in yeah. Calgary. Right, and it was a fight that everybody knew that was was coming. The referees, the trainers, the coaches, you name it, they saw it coming, and it had catastrophic um, a catastrophic ending for Stu Grimson. And frankly, it really became a moment, Steve, where people inside the battle, the players. They thought, you know, maybe this has gone too far. I mean, this kid's had his whole face caved in, broken bones everywhere. We all could have probably stopped it if we wanted. We knew this was coming. We just let it unfold because that's what we did in the Battle of Mm -hmm. Alberta. And for a few moments there, maybe a few months while Stu Grimson healed, people were almost feeling a little guilty that, boy, maybe we crossed the line here. And, and and Grimson never played again for Calgary. And to his credit, though, I believe, and to his credit, rebuilt himself, you know, had a great career after that. But it could have been just a life-changing moment. And he tells you about it in the book and, you know, yeah, talks he does. about it. he really, yeah. he says, you know, it's the old Shakespearean saying, right, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it could have just crippled Stu Grimson. His team basically let him fly not long after he came back. and mm-hmm. You know, he made a great career for himself. He came back, he fought everybody again, he even fought Dave Brown again. And, I mean, what a strength of character to have gone through what he went through as such a young player. And it didn't ruin him at all. And like you said, in fact, it made me a better man and a stronger man and a better player, which uh, I couldn't believe when he said it. Yeah, yeah, really, right? You're like, oh, so you're you're getting beat down by Dave Brown. Actually, made you made you better. You're like, oh, I hope I never have to learn that lesson. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah, it's one of the things too in your book. So obviously, the Oilers are assembling this power powerful uh, team. Glenn Sather, and and you go into the the differences, the juxtaposition between Sather and uh, Bob Johnson, who couldn't be any more different as head coaches. And Sather kind of ruled the the roost, and Bob Johnson's this college coach, and I guess kind of got a guy who got on some players' nerves a little bit because he was kind of always pushing them, always talking hockey, always onto them. And for years, the Oilers obviously are beating down the Flames uh, in the playoff series and during the regular season. But somewhere in the late, mid-80s, late-80s, Calgary starts dominating the regular season. and But the Oilers are still getting them in the playoffs, save for one, save for one series. Well, it's funny. It really turned around that series in 86. If you look at the regular season you know, remember first of all back in those days they'd play four re- four preseason games against each other mm-hmm. they'd play eight regular season games against each other and inevitably meet in the playoffs for six or seven more yeah so you know there that's another sort of that'll never happen between chicago and st louis because they just don't do that anymore yeah um so they they if you look at the regular season 
record of the two teams up until 86. Edmonton owned it. Edmonton beat yeah. them at least six of eight every year, sometimes seven. Right. Then in the 86, when, Steve, when the Steve Smith goal and, and Calgary's climbed that mountain and, and they beat Edmonton, and fair and square, it wasn't just about that goal. They were the better team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they finally had their belief system was verified that they could, if they did it right, they could win. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the regular season records after 1986, it turned on a dime. Yeah. Calgary began to win every regular season series, and they did right into the mid-'90s. So you know, it, it, you're right. For some reason, even when they, the Flames began to beat Edmonton in the regular season, they still couldn't beat them in the playoffs. As it turns out, in five playoff meetings, the only one Calgary won was in 1986. Yeah, and again, I mean, like you said, they want they, the Oilers had 12 minutes to get that goal back that Steve Smith scored, and they couldn't do it. So, right. you know, full props to Calgary. But like you said, it, it took an own goal to, to defeat the Oilers, and yet, and yet they were assembling these powerhouse teams. I mean, you know, like you said, one year they were first, third, first and third, uh, first and second or something in, in, the, in the conference. I mean, it was... It was insane, and yet they could not scale this mountain of the Oilers. And even in 91, so the Oilers win in 90, but they kind of, they just had a run, you know. Most of those guys are gone except for Messier. And in yeah. 91, Calgary's again, they're, they're still loading up. Terry Crisp is coach, and they still can't beat the Oilers. Well, and, you know, it was funny because it was sort of symbolic in 91 was the only year they ever met in the first round of the playoffs mm-hmm. and that's because both teams had sort of had their decade and now los angeles was winning that was the first time los angeles won the smite division i believe it was 11 consecutive seasons either edmonton or calgary finished right. first in the regular season in the smite so in 91 la finally won the thing and they won it handily so mm-hmm. here's the oilers and flames flames are second eminence third they're meeting in the first round which was unheard of mm-hmm. and Calgary was way ahead of Edmonton in the standings. They got way ahead of them in the series. Uh, I believe they were up three to two in the series, certainly. Mm-hmm. Edmonton won game six up in Edmonton, and then down to Calgary they go. Um, no, I've got that wrong. Calgary won game six in Edmonton. Down to Calgary they go, and Calgary's up like three nothing in game seven, and yeah. they had it in the bag. You yeah. know? They, there's no reason they shouldn't have won that game and won that series. And in the end, it was the last battle of Alberta, and, you know, again, it was sort of uh, symbolic. Edmonton, Esatikin came up with a hat trick. They scored a fluky overtime goal off of Frank Musel's leg, and, you know, the damn Oilers won again. I <laughs> know, <laughs> yeah, huh? And as a Winnipeg fan, you'll know that sometimes even when you outplayed them, oh, uh, you, you didn't always beat them. The Jets had them down 3-1 to one two times in 84, 80, no, 85. I think Ellett scored... It's on classic hockey. On the Alex scored the overtime winner, Dave Ellett, and they were up three to one um, after yeah after yes. game four, and then uh, Oilers won back. And then in ninety, I think with Pokey yeah. Redick and Berthum, they were again up three to one in the first round, and Oilers just just can't, you just can't put them away. They were up. They have the, the the Jets were up three to one in the series and three to one in the game. Oh, I don't remember the game <laughs> in the game right. five when it turned around, and the poor old Jets. I mean, there were years when. Edmonton, Calgary, and Winnipeg were all finished in the top five in the regular season standings in the entire league. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
One of the, Wasn't there for Winnipeg. One of the things too, like you talk, you touch on in the book, Battle of Alberta, Mark Spector on the Pulpa Hockey Podcast here. One of the things you touch on in the book is, so okay, Calgary went to the finals in '86. They lost to Montreal. They finally won in '89, and again beat Montreal. Good job by them. But you can argue that Calgary maybe left a cup or two out there, you know, with the teams they had and the and Terry Crisp team. And well, one of the things you touch on in the book, and a few Flames players admit. They geared their team to beat Edmonton, and they were worn out. They, they, you know, like a lot of these upsets, they just they weren't ready to play the other teams, or if they got through, they were worn out in '86. Um, so it's one of those things where Edmonton continued to haunt them, even when they were clearly better. Well, certainly they let one slide in '86. Calgary could have won that cup, but what happened was they they allowed St. Louis to take them to seven games the next series, and it really. It, there was just too many miles on a Montreal and Patrick Waugh beat them, but mm-hmm. more so, Edmonton won their last cup in '90, and, and Calgary. Then after that, Calgary was better. Yeah, they had a really good team '91, '92, '93, and they couldn't. They didn't win enough cups. Theron Fleury said, "There's no reason we shouldn't have won a couple more cups after '89." They had a fantastic club, and you know, you tell me why they didn't. They, you know, and then of course in '91, '92, Mario Lemieux came along with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and uh, the focus shifted east. But there's no question that for a team that was as good as Calgary was, and that had a couple cracks at it, you know, even yeah. when they did beat the Oilers, and and after the Oilers were done, they they blew it. They should have had more than one. Uh, banner hanging yeah. in the saddle home, right? Yeah, they got upset by Coover, right? Pavel Bure, I think they were worst. Vancouver was the worst team then in that series where Bure scored in overtime. Um, and then I think L.A. beat them one year when they were the better team again. I think that was Crisp's last game before he got That's canned, right. you know? Um, so they had these great teams, and they just they couldn't. Finally, they, they got, yeah, like you said, they got rid of Edmonton a little bit, but just couldn't push over the edge. Um, you know, and then um, the, another thing in your book that I thought was uh, was great was a little bit of Sather. Uh, did you? Then you talked to Glenn again, right? It, it was a it was a new interview. Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, yes. you could sense uh, it seemed like it, and it, you could sense that even though okay, look, he's retired now; he's not even the GM of the Rangers anymore. He, to me, anyways, I could sense a little bit of smirkiness, cockiness. Maybe just because you, you have this idea of Glenn Sather, I don't know him obviously. I sense that he still was cocky to you in the interviews about how much they beat Calgary. Well, he's—it's funny when you talk to everybody. You know, uh-huh. I just did an interview the other day with uh, Dave Lumley and the TV interview with Dave Lumley on one end and, and Jim Paplinski in, in Calgary. And even then, even today, they were firing a couple subtle <laughs> shots at each other whenever they could. Yeah. Uh, you know, the hatreds turn to respect now, frankly. They yeah. don't hate each other anymore. But uh, listen, it ain't bragging if you could do it, you know? Sure. And, and Glenn Sather and his orders were absolutely cocky winners. When they were on top, they let you know they were on top, and you hated to watch it if you were somewhat, uh, a fan of another team. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line was they were the best. So if they acted like the best and they backed it up, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything about it. And and I think that right lasts till today. If Glenn Sather wants to take a shot at the Calgary Flames today, <laughs> I figure he's earned it. Yeah, really, right. Also, too, a book again, something I didn't know, something I didn't really give it much thought. And um, and you did. You devoted a whole chapter to Neil Sheehy. Uh, obviously, now he's a player agent. And at the time, uh, came out of Harvard. Uh, said he was a boxing champion, which he wasn't. Um, 
you devoted a whole chapter on him driving Gretzky crazy, driving the Oilers crazy. And like I said, I, I follow the game a little bit. I had no idea that Neil Sheehy would get a whole chapter in a book about the battle. Like, I just didn't. But I guess you decided after after watching the games and talking to all these people that you needed to get behind this guy a little bit and f- figure out what his deal was. Well, he was such an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the first guy in the most violent rivalry in ages that figured out that his best, most effective tool would be turtling <laughs> you know, and not fighting. Right. Uh, he was the only guy in the history of hockey to really get under Wayne Gretzky's skin effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, Gretzky, everybody tried, but Gretzky used to just bury him by scoring five or six points in a game, and they, the coach would get rid of that matchup and try a new one, but. Neil Sheehy managed to, you know, he play, He had very little talent, he'd tell you that, but he managed to find himself on the ice with Wayne Gretzky all the time. He mm-hmm. devised a way to really watch and, and get Gretz off his game. And, in fact, he tells a story that later on in, in their careers, Gretz was somewhere else, I think in L.A., and Sheehy was in Washington, and Gretzky took two roughing penalties against Sheehy in one game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure Greg took two roughing penalties the rest of his career. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> just you know, he is a he's a very he's a guy that wore the black hat every day in this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he embraced when it. Didn't you talk he? to him yeah. and you realize he was really smart. He went to Harvard. Yeah. He devised ways to make people think he was a more valuable player than probably he was. And today he's a very uh, successful player agent. Runs a, a agency out of uh, Minnesota. So yeah. You know what? He's no dummy. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, and he just admits in the book, he's like, I, got, I had no talent. I wasn't very good. But like you said, <laughs> I, I, I lied about being a boxing champion. I, I just, you know, I made, and, and, and then your quotes from other players, they brought it up, you know, I, I would guess without prompting. Like, yeah, she, he was she, he was key back there. He was just one of those guys. So I thought it was interesting. It was a, it was a neat little, uh, neat little uh, story within the story. Yeah, he's just another one of the... You know, I think that's what intrigued me about doing the book is I knew that there was a lot of guys who, you know, they didn't get ink get the ink that probably they deserved. Everyone mm-hmm. talked about the great players, right? Everyone right. talked about Fleury and Gretzky and Messi and all these Hall of Famers. And down in Calgary was about the Reinhardts and, and Oak and Lubes and, you know, Nilsson and all these great players. But yeah. there's a ton of characters in any, you know, as anyone who's been around hockey knows, there's a lot of characters behind the scenes and on the on the last defensive pairing and on the third and fourth line that that tend to lend a lot of humor and interest to the story. Uh, one of your funnier stories too was Mike Bullard getting uh, getting uh, speared in the in the nuts for something he didn't even do. He was just the the first guy over the bench. <laughs> poor, poor Mike yeah. Bullard. Uh, wrong place, wrong time. He hopped the bench and Marty McSorley had just been. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hammered into semi-consciousness by somebody. Right. And as he came back to the bench looking for someone to exact revenge against, there was Bullard just standing there. <laughs> and, then, and, and then he said he could come back in the game, and uh, I guess it was Johnson that said, uh, yeah, he's not going to do shit anyways. Don't worry about it. Just keep him out. <laughs> yeah, it was Crispy. Crispy. Uh, Bullard yeah. got off the stretcher and told the trainer, I'm okay, I can come play. And the trainer said to Crispy on the bench, hey, Bully's ready to go. And Crispy said, 
Ah, I don't want him. He's been crappy tonight anyway. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Uh, no doubt. Battle of Alberta, Mark Spector. How's the book doing for you, like uh, sales-wise and everything, response and everything else? I think it's good. Doing, uh, you know, this is the first time for me. I don't have any – people always ask, how many have you sold? And I don't really know right. the number, frankly. But it's been on some bestseller lists. It's been on the Golden Mail bestseller list up here in Canada. It's, it's kicking around the – you know, on the Amazon's lists, uh, I see it as a bestseller in the sports book category. So, mm-hmm. I guess that's all good news. You know, it, it's got someone's got to be buying it. Thing. It, was, it was it was a great read. Like I said, I read it in one flight and uh, couldn't couldn't put it down. I just loved it. So, um, I, well, I had Chris Cuthbert on here uh, last week. Um, of course, TSN announcer and TBC and everything else. Um, yes. And I went into my Grant Fear uh, rant a little bit, and it's because I, you know I watched a lot of these old games. Grew up in Winnipeg. Uh, he played for the Leafs. I'm a Leaf fan. Um, and he's in the Hall of Fame, so it's hard to say he's underrated because, God, he's a multi-time Stanley Cup winner and he's in the Hall of Fame. But Grant Fear was really good. I, I know you look at his numbers or anybody were to look at his numbers now, they'd go, like, what's the big deal? As you explain in the book, um, you know, why he was a big deal. And, and I just, when I watch him, I watched that Canada Cup Series a while ago, um, the 6-5, 3-6-5 games, and he was phenomenal. Just the guy was amazing. And the thing about Fear that that – you know, if if a goalie let in four and five in big games today, I don't think he'd get to play the next one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that that we'd all we're so hypercritical of goaltending today. Uh, maybe it's because the pads are so big, and the you know you're only supposed to you can't you can't let in more than two a night, or your team's not going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Grant Fuhrer, he he just let in as. as as long as his team was going to score more, Reggie Lemelin said, "Oh, sure, it's easy to be Grant Fuhrer because your team got you five every night." And to a certain extent, he was right. Yeah, uh, you know, Grant Fuhrer's finest moment, maybe as some people would argue, would be in that 1987 Canada Cup. Yeah, when the you know they beat the Russians two games to one in the final, and the score in every game was six five. So. You know, his average goals against average in that series was over five. <laughs> yet no one talks about poor goaltending when you talk about the 87 Canada Cup. No. He made a ton of great saves in that series. And like I said, it's hard to say he's underrated because he's in the Hall of Fame and he's got the cups. But again, growing up watching the Jets series, the guy just wouldn't, he would bend, but he just wouldn't break. Just that was it. He would just decide at a certain point, that's it, and no one's getting any more. And, uh, and he was just phenomenal. I just, I just think the world of, of Grant Fear, like as a goalie, I'm just blown away. Well, by he it. had the right mental attitude. You know, he mm-hmm. could forget about the goal from a second ago because he had the ability to just leave it behind, which mm-hmm. so many don't. And you know, as he said to me in the book, he said, "I think the only number that really matters is wins." <laughs> right. You know, yeah. because everyone's all fixated on save percentage and they're fixated on goals against and mm-hmm. and all these different numbers that now, of course, with the you know the analytics craze in hockey, there's a lot more numbers to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think the one we're forgetting about is the W. I think that's the really the only one that ever mattered to Grant Fuhrer. Yeah, and he had more of them than most guys. No doubt about it. Um, well, hey, thanks thanks for doing this. Touch on a few more things, and then I'll, I'll let you go if you don't mind. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the uh, the one of the things about the series itself was I think, like we said earlier, Calgary had a lot of good players that maybe just kind of fell under the radar, and they were great players. And Edmonton just had the very best of the best. What do you think? All those years, I mean, obviously Gretzky, but you know Edmonton was still beating them after Gretzky left. 
Like, was it was it was it just Edmonton had better players over the years, or do you think that they were a little bit in Calgary's head? Like, just even when when the, when the good guys left, because Calgary had some great guys. Well, it's a good question. You know, is it was it Calgary that never fully believed they could beat Edmonton? I mean, they certainly became able to beat them with regularity during the regular seasons uh, after 86. But no, they didn't. In 88, which was really a time when people felt the two teams were at their, you know, there was the most combined hockey pedigree in Mm -hmm. that 88 series. Edmonton won in four straight, which even the Oilers couldn't believe it. Yeah. Or, Or was it a case of the Oilers... Having done what they'd done, they'd been to Stanley Cups in 83, 84, 85, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. 87, 88, uh, again in 90. Maybe they just knew that, maybe they had something, you know? Maybe mm-hmm. they just knew when the, Glenn Anderson said in 1991, when they, when they went down to Calgary and they played a game seven, he said, you know, we've been there so many times. We've played so many game sevens. We'd all won five cups together. Yeah. He said, we knew we weren't going to lose that game. And there is that intangible and that mm-hmm. belief in hockey. And, and I think it's fair to say that Edmonton had more reason to have a strong belief system. And Calgary probably had good reason to have a maybe a little bit of a shaky belief system when the chips were down against Edmonton. And in the end, it seemed to me that the Oilers refused to lose the big game other than in 86 and Calgary never figured it out. Calgary never figured out how to take that mm-hmm. brass ring and run with it. They had every chance to beat Edmonton earlier in 86. It went down to a Steve Smith goal. They had every chance to to absolutely blow Edmonton out in 91. And for some reason, the Oilers always hung around till the end when they would be the one who'd win it in overtime. Uncanny, Frank. Yeah, yeah, really. You yourself, you're a young sports writer, as you, you talk about in the book, and I guess guys like Eric Duhatchuk and Terry Jones, uh, you know, they're the big dogs covering this the sport. How the guys, the players treat you? I mean, like, like I said, you weren't Mark Spector from Sportsnet at that point. You were trying to make a career. How'd they treat you as a younger guy? And you said you talk about the access a little bit and how it was way way better, and the Oilers' room was a, was a pretty good room to, to, to get quotes and work quotes. How was that? for yourself as a younger guy? Well, it was, frankly, it was fantastic because, you know, the press corps was smaller. Mm-hmm. So because the press corps was small, uh, you got more chance to spend more time with hockey players, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, it's, it's simple math. There weren't, you know, one thing as a, as a professional journalist, the cameras changed the interview. When cameras show up, guys it's just it's not the same interview as sitting next to a guy with a notepad and right pen. sure so back in those days there were very few cameras and you could do all your work without one around or almost all of it mm-hmm. and today it's just different there's three times as many people there's everybody's tweeting everything you know <laughs> yeah. yeah in those days again I, I mean i'm not saying i don't want to be that dinosaur that says everything was better way back <laughs> right, in my day but right I can tell you that I'd sit down next to Craig McTavish or Theo Fleury and we'd do an interview. And, you know, if he misspoke, if he said something he didn't like, he could say, ah, you know, let me say that again, or I didn't mean that. Let me say it this way. And sure. I would say, sure. I'd yeah. cross out that page of my book. I'd give him another run at it, right? Right, right, right. Because why not? But in today's world, that's on camera. Someone's tweeting it. It's out there already. Mm-hmm. So the offshoot is that the, the fella is 
you know, uh, continually more careful about what he says mm-hmm. and, frankly, a little less colorful, right? Right. Um, one thing I'm curious about, like, uh, so Gretzky, Meshe, Coffey, I mean, they are the superstars of the sport. And I'm guessing nowadays, uh, let's say Crosby. Okay, so if you want to go in the room today, Mark, and slide up to Crosby for a 10-minute conversation on anything, either on and off the record, whatever, just just, let's say you just want to do that, can you, A, can you, and could you, I mean, we're talking Gretzky, arguably greater, you know, greater than Crosby, bigger, bigger star ever, could you slide up to him back in the day and get 10 minutes of just bullshitting time? What's that like? Is well, it, how much different is that? It's for sure. Like, I know when Crosby came out here just the other day, I was in Vancouver, and I arranged for a separate interview with him because I wanted to talk to him about McDavid, okay. who would get hurt that night. Yeah. Um, but I had to arrange with the PR staff an extra bit of time. It came, it got squeezed up against a meeting, so I really only got about seven or eight minutes with Crosby, which was fine, and yeah. it was plenty. Yep. Uh, so I did get a one-on-one time with Sid, but it was uh, very structured and had to be prearranged days in advance. And was there a guy you know, over your shoulder? It wasn't too? easy, and it, that's yeah. just the way it is. You want to talk to Crosby one-on-one, you got to set that thing up ahead of time. Now, okay. Uh, in Gretzky's day, how it would work, of course, was you'd, you know, the, there'd always be a few people interviewing Gretzky. It wasn't like everybody got a one-on-one. But then what would happen was the notepads would sort of fall down and the cameras would go away and there'd be two or three writers sitting around with mm-hmm. Gretz. And he he was happy to sit and give – he'd sit and talk hockey with a few of his of, of the trusted writers okay. for another 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, okay. So there was you know, And yeah, he'd yeah, ask you yeah. questions. And it would, it would sort of morph between off and on the record and – you know, if if you wanted to ask him something on the record, and you make it very clear, and you go, look, wait a second, back on the record here, what about this? And he'd right. give you a hell of an answer, and then you'd kind of go back and talk about other things. And someone would say, okay, this isn't for print, but what about this? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it right, was just right. more of a group of guys sitting around talking hockey, and, and because he knew there was less writers, so he knew every one of them. He trusted them. Yeah. We were thankful that he gave us that trust. And I'm not saying we covered up for Gretz. Nobody was covering anything. We just had good conversations. And yeah. the, the hockey climate, and more so the media climate, just doesn't allow that today the way it once did. Okay, so, so yeah. So it, do you blame – I guess you just blame the system for that, right, the, the way it is nowadays, more than the – you know, you can't blame Crosby himself or – anything else but it's just the way it works nowadays whereas you know i'm surprised that i mean let's face it it was a smaller time there was no twitter there was no internet all this kind of stuff but gretzky was still massive you know but that's cool that he would take that time i just didn't know what is what it was like back in the day you know i think everybody took that time back then like it wasn't ever a case of for instance today sometimes you go to a practice like i'll show up let's say in vancouver and i'm hoping to talk to a guy and you know, I'm not to single out the connection that happens in every room. Mm-hmm. The PR guys say, no, he's not available today. He's, he's got something he can't talk. That was unheard of back in okay, the Okay, I was going to say, did that ever happen? It didn't. It didn't happen. Yeah. In no. the 80s, you just went and you basically, frankly, if your goal was to get one particular guy, you, you walked in the room. If he wasn't there, you sat in his stall, and he'd come <laughs> back to it eventually. Eventually. There was no right. Mark Messier's not talking today. Right, you know? right. Glenn Anderson refuses to speak today. Like that, it just didn't exist back then. And 
you know, again, maybe because uh, players are far more taxed today by more media, they decide right. they need the odd break. That's fair enough, but that break didn't exist in 1985, I can tell you that. Yeah, that's one of the things, like I'm doing this hockey podcast, I'm still relatively new at it. I don't have a whole lot of interest in talking to current players. I'd want to talk to retired guys, guys like yourself, uh, Chris Cuthbert, because I just feel like these guys nowadays, I'm not going to get anything if I manage to even get them on this small podcast show, you know? So, I mean, if Mark Spector, uh, if you're getting guys aren't, guys aren't going to talk today, then I can imagine, you know, what it's like for guys who are just trying to, you know, don't have the readership, don't have the listens, that type of thing. So, yeah, it's, yeah, right. It's, you know, it's fair. You know, it's yeah. fair. Like as a guy that's been around the business a long time, I have to work hard some days to get the you know the interviews I need to make my mm-hmm. column what I would hope for it to be. Yeah. And you're right. There's a there's way more people around who are trying to write a blog, who are trying to enter the business, and sure. it is difficult. And if it's hard for me, right. if it's if Pierre LeBrun has to work at it. How hard do you think the guy from you know a little mm-hmm. blog in Nashville has to work at it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in my sport, motorcycle racing, supercross and motocross, I go to all these races and uh, I write an editorial column uh, about what's going on at the races. And sometimes I write some bad things because, frankly, guys aren't performing. Guys are um, riding like idiots on the track. Um, no. And I, I have to call them out. I have to write this kind of stuff. And, I, and honestly, there's some riders that don't talk to me. They just refuse to talk to me. Uh, there's some teams that aren't fans of me uh, uh, just for having an opinion. I've been around this sport for a long time and um, whatever, that kind of stuff. How do you deal with that? I mean, you're a little bit outspoken guy. There's no doubt about it. I read, read a lot of your stuff. How do you deal with that? How's your relationship with guys that you, you know, you maybe you have to write something critical about them the next day? Well, listen, it's, it's, there's two things about being an everyday sports writer that I've learned. First of all, fair. Mm-hmm. You know, people will tell you that in the last 15 years, I've had a fairly, I've written a lot of negative things about the Edmonton Oilers, for instance, and I live in Edmonton and mm-hmm. I write them. Well, guess what? They haven't made the playoffs in 10 years. Yeah. You know, the, the team dictates the tenor of, of what a guy writes. If the team's good, we tend to write positive things. If the team's bad, it's the opposite. If a player plays well, we laud him. If he underperforms, guess what? <laughs> yeah. So I can stand behind those things and say I'm a fair writer. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an element of beat management involved here. You know, sure, you can be the toughest guy you want. Even if it's a terrible team, you're still going to need to get quotes if you're assigned <laughs> to cover that team. Absolutely. So you, can't, yeah. Yeah. you can't write everybody off or you're going to walk in the dressing room one day and no one's going to talk to you. So yeah. There's an amount, there's a, an element of beat management involved, and anyone who's who's worked the beat in any sport can tell you that. And fairness, in the end, you just want to be known as fair. And I think that I can say uh, that I have, you know, the guys I've spoken to, the the, mm-hmm. the vet, the retired players who I've written tough things about and mm-hmm. good things about. Almost to a man, those guys, when I see them somewhere, we shake hands and we have a laugh and a joke. And sometimes they joke about something harsh I wrote about them and we laugh. And you know what? The reason we laugh is because it was fair what I wrote. And uh, every day is not a good news day, man. That's not how sport works. That's kind of what I, I, my sport's much smaller. And I like to say the same thing. Like, hey, I can't all be a cheerleader today. You know, sometimes shitty things happen. Um yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I write what I write in, in, in critical uh, forms is fair. But you know, Mark, these guys don't see that. 
parents don't see that. You know, I mean, the teams don't see that. So it's it's one of those things where you you're like, look, I'm being totally fair, but it doesn't matter to those people sometimes. Well, so. hey, they got to grow up. You yeah. Know, if you're going to be in in the type of competition. Uh, and you want the kind of relevancy where the actual media shows up to write about what you're doing, mm-hmm. you don't have any control over whether, you know, if you have a bad performance, they're still going to write something about you. And yeah. it's like my book, my book's out there. And I had, you know, I've had thankfully almost exclusively good reviews about it, but a guy wrote a review and he didn't like it. And what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> they say it's better to get a bad review than no review at all. So yeah. Um, Certainly, as a guy who's carved enough hockey players over the years, I can't cry and moan uh, because someone gave me a bad book review. There's probably a little irony in that, frankly. Well, so <laughs> well, I was, my question leads me to: Did did you talk to McTavish for this book? Oh, absolutely. Okay, because you've really, I feel, and again, I don't read all your stuff, and I'm not saying it's unfair. But you've been hard on Craig over the years. Um, well, so Craig McTavish presided over a team. Yeah, that no, no, was fairly, yeah. A rebuild <laughs> that was a complete abject failure, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just history tells us that. So well, I was hard at times on Craig McTavish, and you know what? I mean, I'm sure I'm, I may not be Craig's favorite guy, but funny. I know that when I see Craig, we shake hands and we talk. And if well, I need an interview with him next week, I'll bet you I could set it up. And yeah. He would, do it with me, and that tells me that, you know what, I guess I've been fair. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what I was going to say, because you have been harsh on him, and for him to give you time, like you said, set it up, he must realize you're doing a job, you know, and uh, I think that says something for you and for him, too, because... Well, he's um, a pro. I covered him when he was a player, frankly, so we go way back. Right, right. It's the professionals that realize that, you know what, you know, I'm Craig McTavish. I was helping to run this Edmonton Oilers team for a long time, mm-hmm. and it was in 29th place every year. So <laughs> I'm going to get criticized, and I can't. I got to look in the mirror here, right? Yep. It's not right. about the guy with the pen. Mm-hmm. You know, all you got to do is look at the standings to see yes. how Craig's tenure as a general manager went. And I like Craig a ton, and I got a lot of respect for him. I think he's a very good hockey man. It just didn't work out for him as a general manager here, and. I don't think we need to to crack too many history books to make that case. Yeah, no, I, I admire that. It, it, again, I wish some of that was in the sport that I cover, a little bit more professionalism, you know, and understanding. It doesn't get like that because some of the salaries are big, but overall it's such a small niche sport, you know, that I get it from guys where I'm like, I think about a Mark Spector and I think like, you know, or, or these guys, and I'm like, that's all I'm trying to do is bring some fairness and talk about the good and the bad and, and what's going on in our sport. It frustrates me sometimes. Well, anyway. Fair enough. You just, yeah. as a writer, I think you need to be balanced and, and mm-hmm. you know, you can't write negative every day. Sometimes when you're covering a losing team, it's hard uh, not to be negative, let's face it. Mm-hmm. But I know that um, that's why they say, you know, the best, if you cover a team that wins all the time, it gets boring. Because you just write nice things about everybody all the time. And if you cover yeah. a loser, it gets a little tough because there's nothing positive to write. So you got to find a way to give the reader something they don't expect. And, and sometimes you got to find a positive and a negative. Yep. And sometimes when the team's winning, you can still find a player who's underperforming and write him once in a while. Yeah, no doubt about it. Just a few more questions for you here on the uh, Pulp Hockey Podcast with Sportsnet uh, .ca senior columnist uh, Mark Spector. So the Hall of Fame was uh, the guys going in. Uh, they went in last night, and uh, obviously not any doubt about Pronger, Lidstrom, Fedorov. Where did you sit on Housley? It took him a while to get in, but what did you think? 
Well, he was he stood as a uh, very unique and outstanding player. You know, you'll here's a guy that came walked right out of high school in the right. National Hockey League. Uh, he was the one, you know, the Tamu Solani 76 goal in uh, his rookie season. It's one of those records that will never mm-hmm. get broken, frankly. No one even scores 50 anymore. Right. Uh, most of those goals came from Phil Housley's passes out of the defensive zone. So many of them did. Absolutely. So yeah. He had a huge hand in a very historic event that year. He was a very good player for a long time. You know, he wasn't always the most media-friendly guy you ever met, but that shouldn't keep you out of the Hall of Fame or anything. So yeah. I'm fine with Phil going in. He was an exceptional player in his time. I think just like Barrasso, too, like you said, right out of high school into the NHL, like, check it out, right? Yeah. Um, uh, are you like me with Eric Lindros? I can't believe he's not in. Uh, he should be in, and he probably will get in next year. But what's your thoughts on Big E and the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think two things have collided. A passage of time was necessary for us to sort of forget about some of the negatives of Eric and, and sort of have some perspective on all the positives. And at the same time, there's been a lot of years like this one with so many shoe-in players mm-hmm. like Lidstrom and Pronger that there just wasn't room for a guy like um, Lindros, perhaps. And I think next year is the opposite of that. Next year is, is already being seen as, a, as a, a class where there's really no, you know, absolute shoe-in players that they're undeniable. And it will be a chance for some of the players. I think uh, Lindros is up. I think Dave Anderchuk is up. Uh, and there's a couple more guys who have been on the fringes. Kevin Lowe is up. Guys who have been on the fringes of the conversations of getting into the hall, I think next year is the year that we'll likely see Lindros. Uh, but where do you Lindros stand? Where do you stand on it? You know, where? he accomplished a ton. He won major trophies. He was a, a, a big player for a long, long time. Uh, career cut short due to injury, yeah. but I think everyone's fine with Eric getting in the hall. You sound like you're on the fence, Beck. You're like you're not, you're not really thinking he should, you know, really get in. Or I'm not okay. saying he's not. He was never a shoe in for me. He's oh, okay. Not a, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my God, how's he not in the hall, guy? For me, I think that he's waited some time, which is fair. Yep. And I think right. And now that that time has passed, and we've all had a chance to ruminate on Eric Lindros, he's found a year where there will be an opening for him, and I think he'll capitalize on it. And great for him. Great. Well. um, Thank you for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Um, like I said, you didn't know me. You, don't, you, you just took the time to, to answer a tweet, and uh, I appreciate it. Fantastic book, The Battle of Alberta, the historic rivalry between the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames. I guess get it wherever books are sold nowadays. I get them all on my iPad, but <laughs> there's not many bookstores around. But find it. It's out there. Uh, it's a great read. Like I said, I, I breeze through it really quickly. And uh, a great time in hockey like we started with the show Maybe a time that we wish was would come back, you know, a little bit. Well, with certainly the scoring, I don't think we're ever going to have back that kind of violent nature, which is probably fine, frankly. <laughs> right, uh, right. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind seeing something happen to get more goals in this game because it's trending downwards. We're at five goals a night now, yeah, and it can't go any further south before something has to change. Would you change the net size or would you shrink the goal equipment? No, I'd, I'd absolutely shrink the goalies first and foremost. They've buffaloed hockey for long enough. Yeah, Their equipment has been a joke for 20 years. I've been writing about it for 20 years, Yeah, uh, and I've been right for 20 years. Yeah, so sp- spare me the... They uh... don't need that big a gear to be protected. That's a big hoax. 
and the hockey world has to give his head a shake and, uh, and call the bluff on these goalies once and for all. Yeah, spare me the goalies saying, "What about protection?" What about, like spare me, uh, spare me. <laughs> look at all the look at all the guys that block shots in front of them now. Yeah, everybody blocks shots because forward skating equipment is good enough that you don't get hurt very often. That's, that's an excellent guys are point. Be fine. We could take ten percent off their gear in a heartbeat. Yeah, I know. Absolutely right. Well, uh, thanks again, Mark. I really appreciate it. Please uh, check out every, the book, everybody. The Battle of Alberta, Sportsnet, Sportsnet.ca, Mark Spector. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much. All right.